Welcome to another Tech Talk. I am your host, Matt Hanker. We have a full show for you today. In just a bit, Nick Van Knocker sits down with Nikki Story to discuss what is new at Great Lakes Boat Building School and to recognize Nikki's recent achievement. Then, Ronnie Zabel will join me to discuss the basics of O2 sensors and why you, a marine technician, should really start to get to know them. Before we get to our guests, I just want to remind all certified Mercury University technicians that July 31st is when the three-hour yearly certification needs to be completed. This is six months from now, I know, but it's never too early to jump on your training. This is also a great time for Mercury certified techs to check when their three-year classroom course requirement is in fact due. If it is due by July 31st of this year, I highly recommend looking to get registered for lab training at your preferred Mercury University training location. Now let's join up with Nick, who sat down with Nikki of Great Lakes Boat Building School. All right, welcome into this podcast, and we're visiting with Nikki Story from Great Lakes Boat Building School. We've had Nikki on the podcast a couple of times, but first of all, congratulations, Nikki. I uh, wanted to get you on to talk about uh, the award that you just received, the 2022 Darling Briggs Woman of the Year Award that's given from the Marine Retailers Association of America. So tell us a little bit about uh, how you were nominated and uh, congratulations on that award. Oh, thank you so much, Nick. And thanks again for having me on. Um, I was actually nominated by a dealer um, from Dar for this award. And it's just, it's, it's a huge honor. Truthfully, it just legitimizes that the great work that we're doing with our students, um, that employers are pleased with the skills that they have coming out into the industry. This is actually the first time a woman in education or training has been selected for this award. So you had to go down to Austin, Texas uh, to accept the award. And uh, who uh, gave you the award? And uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it's a little bit nerve-wracking. <laughs> I, <had to> <laughs> uh, I had to get up on stage and accept the award from the Marine Retailers Association from, of America. The Educational Foundation actually uh, provided that award to me, but I had to get up in front of 1,400 people and uh, accept that award. So uh, quite an honor. Um, and it was just actually just kind of mind-blowing. Last year, I had attended Dealer Week. It was my first time attending it. It's just a fantastic um, conference to attend um, and get to meet dealers. And last year, I watched uh, them award that to um, Roxanne Rockham um, out of Minnesota. And I was just like, how in the world is this, you know, do you get awarded this kind of award in here this year? I was being awarded it. So uh, quite an honor. Yeah, it is. So let's talk a little bit about the school again, the Great Lakes Boat Building School, school we've partnered with here at Mercury for uh, quite a few years now, located out of Cedarville, Michigan. And uh, you guys uh, just announced this fall, a ceremony that I was a part of, a uh, expansion to the school mm -hmm. uh, to help your marine service technology program. And uh, we wrote about that uh, expansion in our Mercury Dockline blog. You can check that out at mercurymarine.com. So tell us a little bit about the expansion and uh, what that's going to go towards to uh, helping the education of students in the marine industry. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, Mercury has been an absolute fantastic partner. You know, bringing Mercury on as an exclusive partner has really just catapulted the school forward in our training. Um, it's really set our students up um, for some great success and being able to take those MTech classes and get them started on, on the way to becoming Mercurs and Mercury certified. Um, and with that, though, we have had um, full classes and to the point that we're waitlisting students. So the opportunity presented itself for us to receive an EDA grant of $2.7 million to 
expand our facility, which allows us to double down on our enrollment, which is great for the school and great for the industry and great for our students. So uh, we broke ground, as you mentioned, here this fall. And thank you for being part of that. Uh, that ceremony it was a great day um, and just really excited uh, to see a new building go up this summer, you know, a kind of a state of art facility that will certainly meet the needs of the industry and, and get more students out in the, in the field with skilled training. If uh, people are interested in enrolling in the school or more information, how can uh, how can they find that information out? Yeah, absolutely. They can call the school or um, send us an email or reach out to our social media channels as well. But um, some of the really great things that we have going on at the school, too, is we offer a um, CTE scholarship for any student that has participated in the high school level um, in a CTE class, which could be auto class, wood shop, um, you know, aviation or anything like that. Um, we offer a $1,500 scholarship right off the top. Um, in addition, we have some really great sponsorships that lead to jobs when students are done. So an employer helps to pay for a student's tuition on the back end. The student is committed to go to work for that employer. So right now we have a couple sponsorships set up at ten and $15,000 a piece. Just a really great way to um, help pay for your schooling too. So let's talk about the success of the program always comes down to the students yeah. uh, getting jobs in the industry and uh, actually evolving into just becoming an entry-level technician on up to becoming a certified technician. So uh, you've got a couple success stories. Let's tell us about them. Yeah, absolutely. So our program, we have now graduated two um, at Marine Service Technology classes, um, and all of those students have found jobs, which is huge, right? Um, but what is even more interesting is watching our students, the first class that went through, um, I actually just visited two of our alumni who are out, were outstanding students. Um, and when I was in Austin, I went to go visit them on the job, both at different employers, and both um, expressed how um, going through the MTAC classes at Great Lakes Boat Building School really just set them up um, to give them a step forward in being able to achieve their Mercruiser certification, which they both just received, and they're both working on their Mercury certification too. Um, and what's even more interesting, one of them shared with me um, what his wages were. Um, he started out at $25 an hour, and in one year, he's up to $37 an hour. Um, and that's one year of training, and then one year, one year on the job. And at $37 an hour, I don't know about you, but I was not making $37 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> one year out of school. So uh, yeah, just great success. And both of them are so happy. That makes it even more valuable to me is they love what they're doing. Um, both were excited, excited to show me what they're doing and to share with me that they're continuing on down that path of getting their certifications with Mercury. Well, the, the nice thing is you talk about these students being in Austin, Texas, and even though there's a, a school in, in Michigan, Northern Michigan, you're bringing in and uh, able to get students jobs all throughout the country, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And actually, you know, we bring in student, we bring in students from all across the country and then they go out to work all across the country. I mean, we have students that come from Florida to live in northern Michigan and, and learn from our instructors and, and start that certification process. So, um, you know, and we even have international students, too. We had a student last year who graduated that went to work in Sweden. Um, not what I expected, uh, but good for him. And there's actually high demand, of course, internationally uh, for skilled trades as well. So really the sky's the limit or the water's the limit, whatever you want to go with that, right? Uh, so 
The other thing that you've been able to attract is uh, female students as well. And uh, that's been a huge focus uh, to try to get uh, females interested in being a marine technician. And uh, you did that last year and you did that this year as well. And they both become very successful, correct? Yeah. And it, it honestly, it just speaks to my heart seeing these young ladies come through this program. It's just, you know, I would have never considered this for a career path when I went through school. And man, wish I, I wish I would have, right? Like there was definitely that opportunity existed, but even more so, so now. And these girls are amazing technicians. Like I am blown away. They make and, the guys look bad, right? And they love it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, they're driven, they're motivated, they want to be successful. And I can also tell you this it makes the boys step up their game too right, right. Yeah. Yeah. so it's it's just really great to see these young ladies jump in feet first and 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 love wrenching and working on boats well if people want more details about the school where can they find you yeah so our website's um glbbs.edu um and you can also email us at ed admissions at glbbs.edu and we're of course on social media at great lakes boat building school on instagram and facebook too all right thanks for joining us all right. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thank you, Nick and Nikki, for joining us today on the program. And once again, I want to congratulate Nikki Story on the award. All right. Let's welcome Ronnie Zabel. And Ronnie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Because O2 sensors are becoming much more common within our product line, especially for outboard now, you kind of want to have a quick little discussion about O2 sensors. Is that correct? Yes, I would. All right. Um, good. Well, why don't we just start with the basics? Because I know for some people in the marine industry, less so than say like the auto industry where, where O2 sensors have been a staple for a long, long time now. Um, why don't you just kind of cover the basics? What is an O2 or oxygen sensor? So basically what it is, it's a uh, sensor that actually is measuring the amount of hydrocarbons and oxides in the exhaust. And by doing that, we can actually tell if the engine's running rich or if it's running lean. So it allows us to monitor that and it allows us to make changes to how the engine performs. So Ronnie, then what exactly is the role of an O2 sensor along the list of all the sensors we seem to have in our engines these days? So what that role is, is it has been determined that a 14.7 to one fuel to oxygen ratio um, or air to fuel ratio is about the best we can do for producing the least amount of emissions on an engine. So that term is actually referred to as what's called stoichiometric. And by us monitoring that with the O2 sensor, the PCM112 is then allowed to actually change the injector pulse width, and it can either add or subtract fuel to that engine so we can achieve what that stoichiometric is, that 14.7 to 1 ratio. Okay, so essentially it's trying to do its best to get the air-fuel mixture closest to that 14.7 by 1 or stoichiometric uh, level, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, and also, for the, I hope the listeners don't mind, we may refer, refer to stoichiometric as just stoic going forward for, for our, uh, for our uh, ease going forward. So I, I do want to quickly uh, follow up, though. You mentioned PCM-112. Now, what does that mean in terms for mercury products, essentially? Does that mean any mercury product that is going to have an O2 sensor is going to have a PCM-112 in it? 
Correct. That would consider or be on all of our new V6, V8 products, uh, and it is also going to be on the V10 product as well, and I believe they are still using that as well on our race engines. All right. And uh, V12 as well? Correct. So as I mentioned earlier, O2 sensors are becoming a newer thing to the outboard world. They've been a little more of a staple in the stern drive world, or as cruiser technicians have been uh, working with them for a bit now, and especially in the automotive world. So how many O2 sensors are equipped on one of Mercury's engines, outboard so, engines specifically? So on our outboard engines, we only have one, and it is a wideband O2 sensor. Okay, so you say wideband O2 sensor. What does that mean, and what's the, what's the alternative to a wideband O2 sensor? So we make a couple different styles. We make what's called a wideband and what's called a narrow band. A narrow band will basically measure a fuel mixture of 14.7, or I'm sorry, 14.0 to a 15.0, trying to get as close to that 14.7 to obtain that. And it only works in that narrow band of range, hence narrow uh, band. The wide band will make work in a much larger band of ratio, and it's a lot more robust. So basically, it's going to be a lot more durable for a longer period of time. Okay. And it also probably provides um, almost like a finer tooth comb where it's able to fine tune the fueling more so than a narrow band sensor? Correct. Okay, so now we've kind of determined the basic role of an O2 sensor and how they operate. Why don't we get a little more into the nitty-gritty of exactly, like, can you get more into more detail of exactly how they work? Sure. On our engines, when you first start them up, the engine's referred to being in open loop, which basically means, in a nutshell, that the O2 sensor's not working. Okay, it's just sitting there along for the ride. Once the engine starts to warm up, it will, the PCM will tell the O2 sensor to actually turn on. And to do that, we actually heat it up because when we heat it up, it actually performs better. So what we wanna do is we wanna run that O2 sensor up into the 1400, 1450 degree temperature range. So, once we get to that temperature range, it actually starts to monitor the emissions coming out of the exhaust. And by doing that, we can actually take and change the uh, ratio. We can either, either add fuel or we can subtract fuel based off of what the engine is doing. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is hit that stoic number because uh, that's where we're going to produce the least amount of emissions and the engine is going to perform at its best. Okay, so you mentioned open and closed loop fueling. Can you go into a little more detail exactly what those mean and, or what, what exactly it means to be in open loop fueling or closed loop fueling? Sure. In open loop, we're basically making no changes. It's the engine is just running as it's designed. Basically, the PCM has a chart inside. It knows the last known good running forecast, and it follows that chart built into the PCM. Once we determine that we want to go into that closed loop, we heat that sensor up. And now after the sensors warmed up, we can then proceed to start making changes with the fueling to get us closer to that stoic measurement. 
Okay, I just want to make sure so I'm understanding properly. Closed loop fueling essentially means the PCM is now receiving data from the O2 sensor and therefore making fueling adjustments based on that data. Open loop, the O2 sensor is not sending data to the PCM. Correct. All right. I just want to make I just want to make sure I had a a clear understanding. You're absolutely correct. Okay, so I have an, I have a question for you. Is an engine ever actually able to hit stoic? And if so, or if not, what prevents the engine from actually reaching that 14.7 to 1 ratio? So most engines can run pretty close to stoic. I mean, an O2 sensor is not a perfect device in today's world, but it can get into like one hundredth of one thousandth of a percent of being into stoic. So it is pretty... Uh, phenomenal how close it can actually get and uh, yeah there are some things that can prevent that from happening the most common of those things would be uh, the fuel pressure being incorrect uh, if we had a bad spark plug or a bad fuel injector in the engine uh, those are the most common that cause that number to go out of spec so we've talked a little bit about what the o2 sensor is what its job is and how it accomplishes that job essentially now let's talk about how maybe technicians can actually use them for diagnostic purposes. So first off, let's start with G3, uh, Mercury's diagnostic tool. Is there any data points that relate back to the O2 sensor that technicians can use and read to potentially lead them to diagnosing fueling issues within an engine? Yes, there are. Uh, it's a great tool. The G3 can show you if the engine is in open loop or closed loop. So that's important to know because in closed loop, we're actually going to be adjusting the engine. And then what we'll have is what's called a target fee. And the target fee is that stoichiometric number. Okay, that's what the computer is trying to achieve. And that'll be that 14.1, I'm sorry, 14.7 to one ratio. So then we look at what's called the UEGO one fee. And that's kind of actually where it is at that moment in time, how close we are to that our actual target fee that we want to get to. So then we can also look at the uh, temperature sensor inside the O2 sensor. And we want to get to that 1415, 1450 degrees Fahrenheit because that's where it operates at its best. So we can make sure it's getting into that operating temperature. And what's actually heating that up is a little sensor in there. And that is monitored by the duty cycle, how hard that little heating element has to work to keep that temperature where it needs to be. Once we know those are all correct, then the ultimate number that we're looking at is called the I term. And the I term is what the engine PCM is actually doing to that engine to try to get our UEGO 1 as close to the target as we can. That number will show us if it's a positive number, it's adding fuel. And if it's a negative number, it's actually subtracting fuel. Okay, excellent. That's that's really helpful too. Being able just to kind of simplify it down to looking at the I term and knowing that if it's a positive number, the engine is actively adding fuel. And if the I term is actually a negative number, then that means it's actively pulling fuel. So that's uh, that's really, really good to know. And I think that should be hopefully helpful 
for technicians. So speaking of iTerm, is that a figure that technicians could look at that could help direct them towards potential fueling issues taking place in an engine? Absolutely. So there again, if we're adding a bunch of fuel, we could be looking in there to see why we're doing that. Um, most common cause of that is if our fuel pressure drops really low. It sees our fuel pressures low. It, the engine can pick up that we're not injecting all that fuel into the cylinders. So we're getting unused exhaust uh, or oxygen coming out the exhaust. So the PCM monitors that oxygen level and it's like, hey, I've got unburned oxygen, I can add more fuel. So it's gonna start adding more fuel because our fuel pressure dropped. And by doing or trying to add more fuel, what it's actually doing is it's changing the injector pulse width so it stays open longer. Hence, when we fire the injector, we hold it open longer, more fuel can get in there. So a low fuel pressure can actually cause that. Um, another reason for low fuel pressure is if we have some restricted filters, or believe it or not, if you run E85 fuel through these engines, it will add as much fuel as it can to try to compensate for all the alcohol in the fuel. Excellent, that's a good little tip about the E85. You've got the flip side of that as well, is that if we start subtracting all kinds of fuel, if our fuel pressure regulator gets stuck shut and our fuel pressure starts to go high, and a lot of our fuel pumps on our engines can push out 140 PSI plus, and if that pressure goes that high, we're dumping so much fuel into the engine that the O2 sensor says, hey, I don't smell any oxygen coming out of the exhaust. I don't need all this fuel. I'm gonna pull some fuel away. It'll actually pull fuel away again by changing the injector pulse width, and it will, will cut way back on the fuel, and then pretty soon we're pulling 20% fuel, and at that point, whenever we pull or add 20% fuel, that's when the computer actually says, nope, there's a problem. I should not have to adjust more than 20 PSI or 20% or rather of, of uh, change, and there's a problem. Hence, it'll give us that, uh, that I-term fault, and then the technician knows that, hey, we got to go check some things out. We've got a problem. Okay, so let me ask you this real quick. If, if a technician is is looking at an engine in G3, looking at the data, an I-term is maybe showing wonky, but maybe not enough to throw the fault, but there's clearly some run issues. What is maybe the next step then? Would a, for one of the good places to check, would that be uh, fuel pressure? And are there, are there any other checks that you would recommend once you've kind of taken that data from G3? So yes, yeah, so fuel pressure would probably be the first place I would go and check it along with the quality of the fuel. Make sure we don't have water in the fuel. Make sure that we don't have too much ethanol in the fuel. Mercury makes little test kits. You can measure how much ethanol is in the fuel. It's a very inexpensive test. Um, a glass jar and some water and a fuel sample can tell us if we have water in it. Basically, it doesn't cost the, the dealership anything. So it's a quick little test that's, you know, doesn't cost money. So that's always a positive thing. So. Let's pretend I'm in that scenario again. I'm a technician, but I'm working on an engine, has an O2 sensor. 
I just can't seem to figure it out. I've run fuel pressure tests. I've checked the fuel. I've done everything. And I'm still not figuring out what the problem is. So I'm going to call you guys at the dealer service network. What is anything a technician should know before making that call when working on an engine with an O2 sensor? That's a great question. The first thing I would like him to do is to get us what's called a run recording. Most of the techs out there are familiar with that. Um, generally, you like to try to do it while the engine is acting up so we can get that window of where it's having the issue. Some engines will have the issue at idle, some at wide open throttle. But what we really need you guys to do is to get us a run recording. Now, a run recording on an engine with an O2 sensor is unlike anything you've done before. Because an engine with an O2 sensor, when you move your throttle back and forth, the engine is constantly seeing those changes. The PCM's yeah. monitoring that and it's constantly making changes to the way the engine runs. If the operator is doing that, we can't tell what the engine's trying to do. So ultimately, if they can get the boat in that scenario, if it's an idle issue, start it up, leave it idle, don't touch the throttle, and get us a four to a five minute long recording of that event, it really helps us because the PCM will basically stabilize itself and then we can get a true reading of all the data and see what it's doing with the operator not requesting any demand because then we can see if that demand is changing and what is affecting the PCM that's making those changes other than the operator moving the lever back and forth. Okay, excellent. That's a really good advice. So before we wrap things up, Ronnie, is there anything else you'd like to go over or cover about oxygen sensors use in our uh, product? So they're a great tool, uh, they're a great device, um, but you also have to remember that the O2 sensor won't always tell us everything. You really have to make sure that when you get an O2 sensor, you think it might be an issue, take a step back and let's look at the basics of an engine because without all the basics there, the engine's still not gonna run right and you still might get some readings with the O2 sensor that's just not right. And it's because of a mechanical problem. So don't forget the mechanical problems. If the engine's low on compression, if it's high on carbon buildup and it's got a high amount of leak down past the rings, if it's got a damaged valve in any way, those things are going to affect the way the O2 sensor does its job. And I don't want you to go down that path that you're chasing an O2 problem, when in reality, you're, you're chasing a mechanical problem that's affecting the O2 sensor. So again, always check the basics. That's funny you mentioned that. So actually, I, 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 I'm gonna keep, keep things going here just uh, briefly, but so to follow up with that, with a question, would you say then, it's you got to be careful that even though you say you get um, an I term it I term fault, for example, odds are to be careful for technicians not to think that that's just a problem with the O2 sensor, but most likely any issues that you're seeing as a result of the O2 sensor is probably somewhere within the fuel system itself and not the O2 sensor itself, correct? Correct. We have very few O2 sensors actually fail. Once in a while, you'll get one, but very seldom. Usually when they fail, you'll usually pick it up with the G3 recording. And or if you remember when we spoke about the uh, 
um, how the O2 sensor will heat up and how you can look at the duty cycle. Mm-hmm. Most O2 sensors that fail, they won't come up to temperature. If they mm-hmm. don't come up to temperature, it's a pretty easy diagnosis that, oh, this thing has failed. I'll just do my circuit test on my electrical system. Do I have good harness or I don't have any damaged wires? If my harness checks out good, then I I have a O2 sensor that's actually failed. So that's a pretty simple diagnostics. Oh, that's a that's a nice little tip there too to check. That's a great little tip to quickly check whether or not it's a failed O2 sensor or not. Ronnie, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, not a problem. And something I want to add on here before we close things off today is that on MerkNet, where this will be posted, there will be a questionnaire or survey that will allow you to ask some questions pertaining to our topic. So you can go ahead and ask any questions that you may have pertaining to oxygen sensors, whether it be Outboard or Mercruiser, because both of uh, our Stern Drive and Outboard product use O2 sensors in them. So if you have any questions regarding O2 sensors or anything we talked about today, please leave those questions in that survey, and we'll try to get to as many of them as we can in the following episode. Thanks once again to Ronnie for joining us. And again, thank you to Nick Van Knocker and Nikki Story as well. And of course, thank you to you for listening. I am Matt Hinker, and this has been Mercury University Tech Talk.